The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. And there we read, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now this passage that we just read follows right after the well-known words of John the Baptist who said in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. We know that God had appointed John the Baptist to be the herald of Christ, to announce that the promised one had come from God, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ was about to begin his ministry. And John bore witness to this very fact. He preached to the people in Israel, and he baptized the people, always pointing them to Jesus. Because John knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. At this point in his ministry, John the Baptist was already very well known. He was a well-respected person in the Jewish community. At this time, we see that he already had disciples. He had gained influence and, and authority. And, you know, at this point in, in his ministry, John could have said, uh, I kind of like the attention. I kind of like the honor and, and the recognition that people are giving me. I actually don't want to direct their attention to Christ. I want to keep the focus on me instead. But we see that John the Baptist, he had true faith. And that true faith evidenced itself in his humility toward Jesus. When he said in verse 30, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. Now, why was John the Baptist so willing to direct people to Christ? Why did John emphasize throughout his ministry that people need to believe in Christ? Well, we get the answers here in verses 31 through 36. And we will work through uh, the first three points of the sermon outlined this morning. And, and then I want us to spend a bit more time on, on the fourth point. So... We're asking the question, uh, why did John the Baptist emphasize throughout his ministry that people need to believe in Christ? Now, first, we must believe in Christ because he came from heaven and he is above all. We read in verse 31, he who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now the fact that Jesus came from heaven uh, reveals that he is superior and he is worthy of worship. And 
we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that he didn't come from heaven as angels were often sent from heaven. Uh, we know that throughout the Bible, we read about how God sent angels to bring messages to people and in order to carry out some task. But angels are created beings. They came from heaven, but that doesn't mean that they are worthy of worship. We're actually commanded not to worship angels, as stunning as they are, because they are like us. They are merely creations. When the Bible records how uh, people reacted when they met angels, the description is usually that they reacted with fear and with awe. One example we have is in Revelation chapter 22, where John fell down and worshipped before an angel, and he had to be instructed not to do so. Uh, we read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, these wonderful revelations that he saw of, of the glory that was to come, it says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. See, the angel is instructing John, you're not to worship me. I am, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm stunning, right? but I'm merely a creation. We are to worship God alone, for he is the creator. And so Jesus was not an angel. He was not a created being. We don't even say that he was the greatest created being who came from heaven, who was sent from heaven. No, he was the very son of God. He was God incarnate. He existed with the Father and the Spirit before time in eternity, as we uh, even learned in Sunday school this morning. And so when he was sent by the Father to carry out the work of redemption that he uh, willingly and, and joyfully agreed to, he came not as a created being, but as the eternal Son of God. His human nature, the flesh that he took on, that was created, but his divine nature, his divine essence has always been eternal. And that's what makes him above all, as, as John says here. In fact, even notice how Jesus speaks about the eternal glory that he had before his incarnation. He says in his prayer in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus showing there in his prayer, speaking about the glory that he had with the Father before creation. He is the eternal one, so he is above all. Secondly, we must believe in Christ because of what he speaks. We read in verses 32 through 34 of our sermon text, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Now God sent Christ, his son, from heaven. And so we read in our text that when the son speaks, when Christ speaks, he speaks the very words of God. He speaks, therefore, of true things, of heavenly things, things that he has seen and that he has heard. You know, it's like when a, a friend or a family member comes back from a trip to a place that uh, you've never been to, and you're talking to them about it, and, and they're describing it to you in detail. You, know, you believe what they're saying because they've been there. Right? They've seen it, and, and they're testifying about what they witnessed. And it's the same here with Jesus. He came uttering the very words of God because he was God and he was sent by God. And so during his earthly ministry, he testified about the truth. But we also read here that not everyone believed in what he was saying. Some uh, simply rejected him and, and turned away, stopped following him. Others responded by not just rejecting him, but opposing him, hating him. Uh, the religious leaders even went so far as to plot how they might have him uh, crucified. And still others responded not with just rejection and opposition, but others responded in true faith looking to him and believing what he said. They put their faith in him. One wonderful example is one that we find in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43 with the thief on the cross. And, and there as Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thieves, one of the criminals that was hanged there, we read, railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see there how some responded to Christ, some embracing him by faith, and those who did embrace him by faith, he granted eternal life. And third, we must believe in Christ because of what he has been given, because of what he has been given. We read in our text, the second half of verse 34, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. We read here in John that the Lord Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit. And he has been given the Spirit without measure, without limits. One theologian writes, The Father gives the Spirit to the Son, enabling the Son to speak the words of God. Jesus is greater than Elisha who received a double portion of the spirit of Elijah at the River Jordan. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, at which point the spirit descended on Jesus to remain. He is fully God, infinite in being, 
And therefore, Jesus is able to receive the fullness of the Spirit because of his matchless capacity and utter holiness. But throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And so when he spoke, he spoke the words of God. When he carried out his ministry, he carried it out in the power of God because he was the very Son of God who had been given the Spirit without measure. We read also that the Father has given all things into his hand, into the hand of the Son, into the dominion of the Son. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man in John chapter 3, verse 13. And when he referred to himself as the Son of Man during his earthly ministry, he was um, pointing to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where the vision is of one like a son of man who is presented before the Ancient of Days in order to receive everlasting dominion. Jesus is the one like a son of man who has received this everlasting dominion. And this is, friends, what we mean when we say that Jesus is our king, that he's not just a king far off somewhere ruling some faraway land, but he is a king over all of creation because he has been given dominion. He is ruling and reigning over all his and our enemies. And so, loved ones, we can trust him every moment of every day. We are in his hands. He cares for us. He loves us. We're not living in a world that's, uh, that is governed by randomness and, and by chance and by fate. We live in a world that is overseen and governed and sovereignly administered and providentially administered by the Lord Jesus. It is sustained by him and will ultimately be renewed by him as we read in the scriptures. And lastly, we read in our text that we are to believe in Christ so that we may have eternal life. We read in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the word of God remains on him. Now, in society today, we know that uh, spirituality is often praised and encouraged as long as it doesn't get too specific. When it gets specific, it actually becomes politically incorrect to Think of yourself as spiritual. Think, for example, about uh, like a state-sponsored prayer breakfast, and you know, the media is there, and and you know five religious leaders from five different religions stand up and offer a prayer. Uh, nobody nobody really pays attention. It's the moment that somebody prays in the name of Jesus that that people get offended, and that that people take exception to what is being done because our culture generally is okay with the kind of vague spirituality that one might hold to. But the Bible doesn't call us to some vague kind of spirituality or, or religion or belief, but the Bible directs us to a specific object in whom we place our faith. And that is in the Lord Jesus. We have an absolute truth claim as Christians, and that is that Christ and 
Our salvation is found in him alone. What makes Christian faith, saving faith, different is that we have a definite object and that our faith is in him alone. That Jesus Christ and the promise of salvation is in him. There's uh, nothing vague about it. There's nothing vague about what we believe as Christians. We sing, my hope is built. It's founded upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And this is what John is bringing out here in verse 36 when he says that whoever believes in the Son, in the Son, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now I want to ask you this morning, what does it mean to believe in the Son? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, belief begins first with knowledge. begins with knowledge. Because we have to know who we are putting our faith in. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is why the correct preaching of the gospel is so crucial, because the Bible often talks about the knowledge of saving faith with this phrase that we believe that something. We, we believe in, in something that's true and in a claim. And this phrase, believing that, simply connects two ideas, that you must believe, but you must believe something specific. Some examples from Scripture in John chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. He's just pointing there out something very specific. If you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. You have to believe, Jesus says, that he is God, that he is the one who is sent from God. Otherwise, he says, you shall die in your sin. He's calling and speaking about specific knowledge. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we read there, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. There's specific knowledge that we need to know about. Believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this knowledge of Christ, this truth that we hear preached, helps us then to understand in whom we are believing. But in order to say that you believe in Christ, loved ones, it actually requires more than just knowledge about him. Because a lot of people in the world know about Jesus. Uh, Muslims, for example, have knowledge about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. Just because they know about Jesus doesn't mean, therefore, that they have saving faith. And, and so another element is required. The next element that is needed for faith, for believing, and, and for that belief to be true, is known as assent. Now, assent is uh, simply the approval or the conviction that the knowledge that I have of Christ is true. It means that you believe what the Bible teaches about Christ and his death and his resurrection, that, you know, it's not just a myth or a great story or uh, something that happened in history but doesn't really affect me, is not that important. But we believe that it truly happened, that 
Jesus really did die on a cross in order to atone for sin, that knowledge about Christ that we have from Scripture is true. So knowledge and assent, two very important elements, critical elements of saving faith. I want to ask you this morning, do you think that that's, tr- that's uh, sufficient? The Bible actually says that that is not sufficient for saving faith, to have simply knowledge and a sense of the truth. One more thing is necessary. This is what James gets at. He explains that knowledge and assent are not enough because he says that even the demons know about Jesus, and even the demons assent to the fact that what the Bible says about him is true, but the demons are, are not saved because they live in rejection of him. In fact, we see in places like Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, that Jesus there has just begun his ministry. He's still kind of unknown around town, except for the demons. They all know who he is. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, again at the very beginning of his ministry, we read that a demon-possessed man, a man who was controlled by a demon, confronted Jesus and said to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, did you catch that? That the demons have knowledge and and they assent that that knowledge is true, but do you see how they don't have saving faith? What is missing? What's missing is trust. Trust is missing. The third necessary element of saving faith is trust. It's helpful for children to perhaps think of these three elements of saving faith as as a three-legged stool, and you can picture that in your minds. And you know, as you're picturing that three-legged stool in your mind, that all three legs have to be there in order for that stool to remain standing. And it's the same with saving faith. You need all three of these elements to be present. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Trust is essential because it means taking that knowledge that we have, that knowledge that we say that is true, and saying, not only do I believe it's true, but I believe it's true for me. I believe it's true for me. So often people think of, Faith as uh, feelings, just feelings. Uh, In fact, unbelievers will often say, I think it's okay for you to have faith, but, you know, I personally am not wired that way. I'm more rational. I'm more uh, logical. Loved ones, uh, faith is not just feelings. It's knowing and, and clinging to God's promises to us in Christ. Old Testament scholar Christopher Ashe explains, he says, faith is grounded in covenant promises. It is not a subjective, personal quality or capacity that some people just have and others don't. Faith is rather a conscious decision to trust what God has promised. As one hymn puts it, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the trust element of saving faith. Not just that he died, but he died 
for me. He died in my place for my sin. It's believing that the wrath of God was directed toward me at one point, and Jesus died on the cross and took that wrath upon himself. So as we read there in John chapter 3, verse 36, therefore, because he took the wrath of God upon himself that was directed to me, the wrath of God no longer remains on me because it was placed on Jesus. And we know as we think about this wonderful idea that not only was the wrath of God placed upon him, that wrath that was directed toward us, but his righteousness, his goodness was placed into our account. So now we not only stand forgiven before God, but we stand righteous in his sight. And John writes this in verse 36, that this kind of faith, true saving faith, he says, has measurable results. It results in obedience to Christ, obedience to his word and his commands. And, you know, when we think about it this way, loved ones, it's not obedience out of fear. And it's not obedience because we want to make him love us more. But as we see here, it's obedience out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. See, friends, there is no other way. This is what John in his gospel is so clearly conveying to you and to me this morning as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to be saved apart from Christ. For those who reject Christ, who is the only way, the truth, and the life, the wrath of God remains on them because they do not trust that one has died in their place. And so for those upon whom the wrath of God remains, no amount of good works, no amount of sincerity or of penance can therefore make them right with God. The only way is to receive and rest in Christ alone for salvation. What we read again in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. There is no other way. And yet we see in our society that so many people try to get in by other means. In an interview a few years ago, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who's the former mayor of New York City, uh, he said that it's his uh, work for more gun control, along with his anti-smoking and healthy eating campaigns that have won him God's favor and a sure spot behind the pearly gates. Uh, his exact words, and these are words made in the context of discussing his anti-smoking and anti-obesity pushes, as well as his concerted crackdowns on private gun ownership, he said this uh, to a New York Times reporter. He says, I am telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven it's not even close. Now that's how many in the world think. See, Michael Bloomberg is merely expressing the worldview of 
so many. So many who believe that when they get to heaven, there's going to be a giant scale. On one side is going to be the bad works, all the bad things that they've done in their lives. And on the other side of the scale is going to be all their good works. And as long as their good works outweigh their bad works, then they are going to be fine before God. And the Bible clearly says that even our good works, loved ones, are as filthy rags before the Lord for those good works that are done apart from faith in Christ. Now compare Michael Bloomberg's answer and the worldview of so many in, the, in our uh, culture. Compare that with Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60, which asks, how are you righteous before God? The answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefits with a believing heart. May God grant us faith to believe and not doubt that Jesus has died in our place for our sins. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would inscribe it on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Grant us strength and conviction to live by faith in this present evil age. We ask, Lord, that you would cause the seed of the word that has been planted in us to grow and bear fruit, 30, 60, 90, even 100-fold for your glory both now and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name.